Why do you want something that isn't you? Find the thing that is you and want that. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by schooloflaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts here, behind the wheel, steering this crazy vessel. One more episode deep into the world of comedy. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing okay. It's been crazy. It's been a wild ride, and uh, I don't know. Are we in the middle of it? Are we in the first third of it? Are we just twenty percent in? We don't even know, man. Hey, but I do know this. We've got a great show today. Uh, a friend of mine, Jim Hope, who, man, I haven't caught up with him in a while, as it turns out. But Jim is a great guy, funny guy. He's written for some TV shows. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how you build a TV show, whether it's uh, based on characters or based on a real person and the types of things that make a sitcom and a TV show work. Conflict. Helpers, herders, those kinds of things. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm excited for you to meet Jim Hope. If you haven't met him before or seen him, definitely Google some uh, YouTube clips. Actually, just check out the show notes. I'll be linking to a lot of his stuff right on there. So Jim's coming up in a minute. I want to give a shout-out to our episode sponsor through Patreon, which is Bo Schuster. Bo's been with us for a long time, since May 14th, 2016. A uh, really long time. Thank you so much, Bo, for being, I think at this point, I'm looking, it's our longest uh, running supporter. So you're doing great uh, keeping us floating here, buddy, and I appreciate that. Hope all's well, and you get back to some fresh stages when they're available. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I do want to say that I'm having a ton of fun with my virtual writing class. If you missed it, you missed it. Uh, we're getting ready to hit our second uh, out of three sessions, and the first one was just wall-to-wall great fun. I can't even explain it. It's a lot of good people on that, and uh, maybe we'll catch up with some of them on a future podcast. That would be cool. Uh, what should we do? Should we do the episode? Yeah, up, up. One more thing first. How about this? Hey, if you're in the Indianapolis area, I want to make sure to let you know I will also be in that area for the first two weeks of September, all the way through the uh, 17th. Now, I don't have every day or night free. I'll be doing a project up there, but I do have some days free sprinkled throughout. So if you might want to meet up for a cup of coffee, if you might want to go for a bike ride, I'm bringing my bike up there, been kind of getting into that. Uh, give me a shout, schooloflass at gmail.com. All right, let's get into this episode of Jim Hope. I'll tell you a little bit more about some other stuff on the backside. Well, I'm on the call today with Mr. Jim Hope. How's it going out there on the West Coast, sir? Uh, it's beautiful. It's like it's it's, it's totally different from where you are. We have no coronavirus. Everybody's walking around singing, breathing the fresh air. It's just the most wonderful thing. At, oh, no, it's horrible. It's actually <laughs> just really awful. It's maybe the worst thing ever. You know, I was just thinking it would have been great if they actually would have created that 20-mile biodome that they did for the Truman Show and just let all the, all the people that weren't sick in there so you could live a normal life inside this little tube until things clear up on the outside or put yeah, all the sick people in there. One yeah, of the two the, things would yeah, work. Yeah, 20 miles is, would do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for that. I, I, except in, in the LA area, if you put us all in a big tube, I think we'd, we'd have to murder each other. It's yeah. just the, the worst. It's not good. It's, it's almost like the, the, whole, the whole nation is tilted in the direction and all the fruit bats come just down. They, they, stop at the, they stop where the Pacific Ocean is. They can't keep going any further, so the fruit bats just stay here. So 
yeah, I don't want to be in a big dome with all of them. I want to have a chance of escape. That's why we have so many freeways, so that you just can leave if you really, really need to. So. And right now, those freeways are looking pretty clear. And you can oh, see they're very clear. <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah, tell me about that, too, just from the visual aspects of this thing, this, the things you notice. They keep showing us out here, like the smog has lifted, and you can see skylines. Like, yeah. When you're right there, is it, is it mind-blowing, like the difference? Uh, you know, it's, that's a, that's it, after it rains, it's also clear, you know, I mean, and, and the smog isn't really what it used to be. I mean, that, that, that old trope, I was from the tonight show and everybody else about how bad, and, and actually it was bad when I was a kid, I, I grew up in LA, so I, I know what it is. Uh, when I was growing up that you couldn't see the mountains and the mountains are, you know, 10 miles away, five miles away, you know, less, you know, right. and you couldn't see them. But yeah, we can see the mountains now most days, you know, mo most everything's, you know, it's not, it's not that horrible most of the time. It's just the traffic is more and more and more and more people come in. That, that's the thing that's really changed is that, you know, there used to be secret routes into Los Angeles that would be easy to go. Like there was a secret route. There was La Cienega Boulevard and you can kind of take that into LA and you'd be fine. That's not a secret route anymore. That's gridlock. It's just gridlock so many places and, and rush hour it ends, rush hour ends about 2 a.m. And then it starts again and it gets 3 a.m. So <laughs> it's really, there's really a non-rush hour. Right. And uh, the rest of the time, boy, there, there's so much, I said, boy, I just, you know, I just, boy, there's so much traffic here. Golly gee. Uh, that doesn't sound very Los Angeles, but, you know, I was raised by Texans partly. So there you go. That's cool. So you grew up in Texas or your Texans? Uh, no, my grandparents are Texans. So that's you know, occasionally it just kind of comes out, you know, <laughs> yeah. a boy, you know, boy. how you doing, boy? It's like, <laughs> why am I saying that? I was raised in Los Angeles, <laughs> born in Los Angeles. But, yeah. Well, and that's kind of an anomaly too, to, for most of the comics that I speak to, almost everybody moved there because it was kind of like the, the big magnetic force that had to draw you in either to New York or LA or whatever. But right. you grew up there where you, was comedy on the on the back of your mind when you were growing up? Were you creative at an early? No, no. I was going to be a college professor like my grandfather. Uh, that was the plan. I mean, I, my mom was seventeen when I was born, so I mean, I lived in trailer parks and lived in tenement houses. We it was not good, uh, but but I still was going to be a. I, I kind of was a good. I well, I was a, yeah, I was a good student. And uh, my my grandfather had been a preacher and a tennis coach and a professor at Pepperdine. And so the, the goal was always kind of that, that, you know, I was, I, I was going to do that. And then, uh, in college, actually, I, I, the last semester of college, I or quarter, actually, it's quarter system, uh, last quarter of college, I just got disaffected with the whole academic community, uh, and thought I'm going to go do stand up, And I did. And so <laughs> I just kind of jumped into stand up and started and it went well early and just stayed in it. So I never thought about it. I thought about it a little bit in high school, but, ah. A little bit in college, and then at the end, it's like, ah, let's do it. And so, you know, it worked out. That's pretty cool. So, and you started right there in, in the Los Angeles area, or were you somewhere else? In yeah, that's a mistake. I mean, honestly, you surely should be someplace else and get good before you come here. So, like Bud Friedman, who uh, owned the improv, he saw me my first night of doing it on a professional stage. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, he didn't remember, fortunately, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't good. Uh, you know, I thought I was great. You know, every, every, like every month I'd look or every six months, at least I look back at my career and go, man, I was really horrible six months ago, but now I'm great. And you know, it took me, it takes about five years before you're actually like a really solid performer on stage. You can get your laughs. I mean, I was, I was getting good laughs even kind of early, but 
but I wasn't really a comic. I mean, you know, when you start out in stand up, you're, you're essentially naked when you're standing on the stage and you start building material and the material is your clothes, right? That's your armor. And so you're kind of hiding behind your material. And about five years in that material becomes your body. It becomes who you are. And that, that point, it's like, that's your armor, but your skin. So you're naked again, but you're cool with it. You're vulnerable, but you're actually, you're actually that you're that thing. And it takes about that much time. I've never seen anybody who was really on top of their game. Even if they're funny and they're getting big laughs like Dave Chappelle early, they're not at the top of their game until about five years in. And then at that point, you kind of, at that point, a really good comic is really, you know, you'll see it. That's interesting. I never thought about it as as wearing armor before. So like when you're an open mic, you're just kind of in a speedo with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your one closing bit that works. Your one joke that you think is your closer that gets two laughs. It's just mm-hmm. a little yes, it's your fig leaf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And it's like you're trying to protect yourself. And then when you finally realize at some point, you don't have to be protected. You know, you're just you are this thing and you're able to do this thing. But it does change your perspective on life, too. I mean, as you become that thing, uh, it, it affects every aspect of your existence. And it's hard to compartmentalize to no longer be the comic in regular life, which is why we have a lot of problems with relationships a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, many of us do. Some people can actually compartmentalize brilliantly and they, they keep their family on one side and they keep their comedy on the other side. But so many of us don't, um, you know, which is, which is not great. <laughs> it can be <laughs> tricky for sure. That too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a trick. Yeah. When, uh, when you started out, so if you started out there, you're obviously like you're saying, going to the improv, seeing some big names. It's always fun to find out like who are some of the first people you saw and you're like, Oh wow. I can oh, do this I'm not because just, not- Yeah. I worked with them. I mean, you know, being, I, I was, I was uh, competent early cause I'd been a, a public speaker in high school and through college a little bit. I was a rower in college. So I kind of dropped, stopped doing the, the competitive speaking, but in high school I was like, I competed at the national tournament at extemporaneous impromptu speaking. I did all these other things. So I knew when I went on stage, I'd be able to comport myself, you know, well enough. Uh, but, uh, and, and I, I, but I opened for early on, I mean, I opened for uh, Tim Allen and Gilbert Gottfried and, um, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and Ellen helped me out with my career a fair amount. She's really sweet. And uh, a lot of people, I, you know, just, I just go down the lid, Chris Rock and Damon Wayans took me on the road with them a bit. Uh, you know, which is great, really nice of him. And, uh, you know, I, I just hard to remember all the people, you know, Louis Anderson, Robin Williams, uh, you know, the, uh, just people I, I was working the club and I, you know, they'd come in for a spot or they'd be the headliner and I'd just be the person doing it, you know? Right. So it was really, you know, it was really great. I mean, that was, that happened early, you know? What were some, like some things that maybe let's just pick Ellen, like that she would do on stage that you would learn from or any advice she gave you or, you know, how did she help you develop in, in her Well, life? you know, mostly she was already kind of on her way and uh, it, it was fun just to watch her. She's, she's a technician. I mean, she knows who she is on stage. She actually knew what she was doing up there just preternaturally, it seemed like, but I'm sure it took years to get to the place where she was, but being able to be, she's one of the most vulnerable uh, performers you'll ever see in terms of just kind of letting, letting you feel like you are her friend and not being worried and not being afraid of the crowd at all, but really kind of, there's just such an incredibly endearing quality about her, uh, on stage. She just knew she just has that. And, and, but she uh, obviously it, it's an interesting thing. That thing is in you, but then there's also this thing that you learn to cultivate that and kind of bring it out. And there's some really sweet people who on stage don't seem very nice. And there's some people 
who seem really, really lovely on stage. I mean, you just think they'd be your best friend and they're horrible people. I shouldn't say horrible people. We're all, they are. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, many, yeah. I mean, we all have bad things. You know, there's a lot of, not everybody's, you know, we're all fallen, but, uh, but there's some people out there that are really, they're not kind to others and they're really, you know, uh, lacking in compassion. They're, they're, but they seem on stage like lovely people. So there's, you know, that stage, but, but just watch, you know, she's just one of those people that just was able to kind of, you know, let you in. Uh, so she's fun to watch that way. And, and her, just the banter and the being able to come back on things and play, play with the words. I, I think she's really great. Um, yeah. And I would like, she's one of a handful of comics that when, when you watch her, you kind of, you don't feel like she's trying to do stand up. She's just right. talking and mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And as the comic know exactly where the punchlines or the beats are going to lie. Um, the first few times I see people like that, I just can't figure out how are they doing comedy? Like they're not doing it the way that I, I normally see it. How would you describe her, you know, almost rambling? Let me get back to it. I got off track, but mm-hmm. she knows what she's doing, but how would you yeah. describe that to a comedy in, in terms of her style? I guess. Well, it's interesting. It's like so many people don't understand that they need to lean into what they are uh, in life. And, and that's really just truth about everything. That, that's just a, that's a real thing. Like, why are you funny? Well, how do you make people actually laugh? What is in life? You know, I remember when I first came up, all these people were pretending to be Jerry Seinfeld. It was crazy. It was like, Hey, have you ever noticed this? What was it like this? What was that meeting? Like Jerry Seinfeld is a fantastic Jerry Seinfeld. He is the best Jerry Seinfeld there could possibly be. But all these other guys are like, oh, that's how you do it. Oh, that's how you do it. No, the way you do it is the way you've always done it. If you weren't funny before you started doing stand-up, why are you doing stand-up? If you weren't making people laugh to begin with, why are you here? You know, it's just like one of those things. Well, I really want it. Yeah, well, thousands of people really want to be singers, and they lined out outside of uh, uh, American Idol auditions and so, so that we could laugh at them. Because functionally, they are not ready. Right, <laughs> and, right. that, and, that, and they're not for that. That's not for them. So why do you want something that isn't you? Find the thing that is you and want that. And, you know, it's like, and that's true also once you get into stand-up and you are a funny person. Do the thing that makes people laugh when you, that, have always made, that you've always done to make people laugh. Go do that. Yeah, and, you, know, you know. I was talking, to, you know, Mary Ellen Hooper, I'm sure. She's been uh-huh, around yeah. for a while. She, she mentioned that the, the turning point for her early on was just, keeping a journal for a couple of weeks and writing down what made her laugh. And then she, mm-hmm. she realized she laughed when people were stressed out and had to remain dignant, you know, and, and keep their composure. And so ah. she goes, she goes, that's what makes me laugh. So that's my entire act. She goes, you see a new comic. They're like, they're, they're doing a political joke. They're trying a, an impression that halfway mm-hmm. lands They're doing an observation. They're trying mm-hmm. to tell a story. And you're like, who is this person? And you just summed it up even clearer that whatever makes you laugh is who you are. So just do mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. she was kind of intentional on finding out what, what is it about me that is funny. And that's right. how she identified with it. Yeah, right. I guess, you know, I always say we, we put on like little training wheels when we start comedy. And really, whoever our favorite comic is, is who we kind of yep. start off at. But at some point, you got to drop those off and realize you're riding the bike. Who are you, right? Right, right, right. That's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you have to kind of know yourself and you find yourself during, through that process. I, I'm not saying that people, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, because people, when they first start out, they don't really know what they're doing. It's something they want to do. They have made people laugh. If you've never made someone laugh, you shouldn't be doing this. And <laughs> I mean, you know, that's it. If you don't typically make people laugh, if you, you know, there's that scene in, in good, uh, what is it? Good morning, Vietnam, where Bruno Kirby's character says, I know in my heart, I'm funny. Okay, but you've 
the, the whole point was, yeah, but if you're not making large groups of people laugh in your life, then why? Why? What's? It's like I know you want it, but you can want it in a different way or find a different way to to express it. And you know, I mean, a lot of comedy writers, and I'm a comedy writer also. They're not people who made huge groups of people laugh, but they were making their friends laugh, and they were writing and thinking funny things. They just weren't really verbally as funny necessarily. And now a lot of comedy writers, hilarious people, who made huge rooms of people laugh with their words, but not everybody. So I'm not saying that you have to be the class clown. Uh, or the guy who makes fun of the class clown, but you have to be, uh, there has to be some funny thing to begin with if you're, you know, if you're there. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes to writing and, you know, you've written many scripts, you've worked on TV shows, you, mm-hmm. you've written prolifically for a, a long time now. What, what are some things that help keep you motivated to write? I'm sure, you know, for all of us, the paycheck for sure, we got to keep writing for that. Yeah. But where, where does the inspiration still come from so many years down the road? Uh, you actually nailed it. Uh, it's, it's about money. <laughs> putting, that, putting that kid through college. In fact, I think the last time we talked, your, your daughter was getting ready to go into college. That's correct. Yeah. That was back in 2011. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that she started school just then. And now she's very much a graduate and <laughs> out there in the world working. So, well, not right now. She's not out there. She's at the, she's in the room next to me right now, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> working on something <laughs> uh, because cool. we're all quarantined. Yeah, it's interesting. Everybody's kind of living life a little differently right now. So mm-hmm. were, um, were you currently writing on a show before the quarantine happened? Or I know you're teaching too, so I want to get into mm-hmm. that a little bit. So yeah. what was the immediate effect of the, the social distancing and stuff for you as a, as a writer, as a performer? Well, as a writer, social distancing was pretty much just doing what I always do anyway. So I was pretty happy about that. No, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, I, I wasn't on a show. I'm, I'm actually uh, developing... I mean, I have one show that uh, with Henry Cho, actually, Henry and I are uh, sold a show. Um, we've working with Triple, Ho- Triple Horse Studios, but we haven't had a chance to push that where we need to push it. Uh, but it's for Henry, which is great. And then there's um, uh, doing an animated uh, adult animated show that I'm uh, doing with a friend of mine uh, and with a, an animation studio. We, we've got that going. We're trying to sell that. And then uh, I'm developing a show for Disney Junior, and uh, so I've written that, and I've got to do another rewrite for them. Uh, Disney Junior, it's completely different, because I've done a lot of kids' TV, but I've never written for the two to five market. Two years old to five years oh, old wow. is a very different, they have a completely different way of seeing things, and so that's been, that's been interesting. And so, and I'm also developing other stuff, but currently I'm not on a staff. I'm, what I'm doing right now a lot of is teaching at, I teach at Chapman University. I teach a couple classes there, and I also teach over at Azusa Pacific University a couple classes over there. And so I've been doing that online uh, during this this coronavirus thing, and it's been interesting. It's been you know talking to kids, you know, young people, my students who are great. I, I you know I'm trying to connect with them and kind of giving them some normality. I'm not going to use the word normalcy because it's actually coined by Warren G. Harding's campaign in 1920. It's not an actual word. <laughs> it's normality. It's not normalcy, uh, and it really bothers me every time I hear it. But I, I think this is—I'm going to—that's—that's I'm going to die on that hill because that's—it's just everywhere. So whatever. But um, yeah, who, I'm just who trying coined to coin the term "new normal" because that's—you know—I—I I don't know actually. That's a real that new normal. Is there was that TV series that they were trying to be Modern Family, uh, but it was this t- pale imitation of it, uh, and they used that was the name of the series, "New Normal." But I'm sure that that was around before i'm assuming it was around before then but i, I guess it, was, it came out right after the regular normal 
Yeah, regular. If we, tra- if, we, if we could trace it back to when regular normal stops, the new normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or old so, normal, which is, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or future normal. So there, uh-huh. are, there are different types of people, um, right. whether we like to admit it or not. But in comedy, there's always people mention comedic tropes. There's types of characters, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a play or a book or a comedian. Right. And, and so I want to dig into that a little bit because I've never had anybody on the podcast that really could break it down. I'm sure as a, as a writer in Hollywood, you are pretty well versed in the different tropes. You know, almost every sitcom has this type of person. Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. just walk us through that. You know, you don't have to pick a specific sitcom if you want to, that's fine. But just here's the character. This is the trope that they're in and describe what that means as far as the story development. Well, it's interesting. It's like, you know, you're, you're, the way that you build a show, uh, you build it either from premise or from character. Uh, like if you watch a show like Fleabag, which is pretty, it's based on a person. It's 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 Phoebe Wallace Bridge, Waller Bridge, and that's her. That's the character that she's developed. A person who's a self loathing. She's self loathing. I mean, you know, in large part, she's doing things and she knows they're bad for her, but she wants to do them. Uh, and and that's based on her. Everything that comes out of that, the premise of that thing comes out of her. And the other way to do it is to build a premise. Like I want to do a show about a newsroom where a woman, you know, takes you know this associate producer job, Mary Tyler Moore show, or uh, about a mash unit with these wild doctors. And that's you kind of populate it with people. And so, it, really, when you're writing a show, it's you come from either direction. You know, uh, like the show Glow is based on the premise, right? And then you populate it with characters, and those characters are all kind of kind of related, interrelated. And so when you when, when you do premise first, and actually character is premise, premise is character. So it's kind of, I'm, a little blurry. you know, it's a little blurry. Yeah. But I'm just saying your emphasis when you come in on it. Um, but you always have a, you almost always have a lead. You have a protagonist or you have deuteragonists. That's two, two leads uh, who kind of function together like two broke girls are kind of deuteragonal. Um, but you, you start with your, your lead and then everything kind of comes out of that. And what, Func- what what supports that and everyone is either a helper or they're an obstacle they're a hindrance mm. helper or hindrance they're uh, they're helping you get your objective because a character has to have an objective they have to have something that they want and there has to be an obstacle to getting that thing that they want that's a story that's where story starts um and it's a it's a character a person a setting uh a desire and an obstacle to getting that desire objective and obstacle uh and that's how you do that. That's when you write a log line for a television series, you, you write that, you know, uh, you write those things and you say, this is what it is. And that's how story is. Uh, that, that's how you build your story. You're, you're, you're actually your larger story. And then each story inside of that, when you're doing TV, you have to have stories. Right. right? And uh, so, but it just, it, you know, who, are they helpers? Or are they, they hindrances? Some people are helpers and hindrances, you know, that right. like Gilligan was a helper and a hindrance. Although he was also the center, he was ostensibly the center of the show. But if you really look at it, it's the skipper's the center of the show. He's the one that has this big objective of getting, getting off the island with everybody else. And the helper over here is the professor, but the hindrance is Gilligan, you know. Uh, if, yeah, I'm, if, I'm thinking you know, now, but like the Andy Griffith show. So you've got the right. deuteragonist, I guess, would be Andy and Barney. The yeah, um, yeah. Really, for that, it, it's Andy because you're focused on his family, also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but yeah, yeah. That's yeah. And when you break it down into helpers and hindrances, I mean, that really right. clarifies that show for me in a way I haven't thought of before. Because right. you know, as much as Floyd wants to be a helper, he's he's really not moving the story forward. Usually, Gomer, right. Goober, um, those. But also in that show, this is what amazed me about that particular show is that you know they're all country people. They're all kind of simple. 
But once the show was established, like you had such a, a if you look at like a, a broadcast line or a, a bandwidth, very narrow bandwidth, but the characters still were able to differentiate themselves. I mean, Gomer mm-hmm. and Goober kind of close, but you could tell the difference between the two. And then you add in an right. Ernest T who's a little more extreme. Andy yes. a simpler. Right. But it, it makes me appreciate that show more because they had such a narrow, it wasn't mm-hmm. like here's a glee where you have every character in the high mm-hmm. school. It's like, it's this small and they're all playing right. within that. Well, on that particular show, which is interesting, it's like, it, it, you think about it, it's actually more like The Office than it is uh, most other shows around. And you don't really realize it, but but um, in, ger- in large part, The Office, the center is supposed to be Michael Scott, right? But really was John Krasinski's character, Jim. Jim is the guy who's always looking at the camera, giving a smile. So he's getting laughs. John Krasinski's character, uh, Jim didn't say that many funny things. He didn't do that many funny things. He did funny things to the other characters, but he was really bouncing off of them. They Dwight would do some, say something crazy, and then he'd get John Krasinski's character, Jim, would get the laugh by looking at the camera and making kind of a muggy face, which was fun. Um, the same is true of Andy Griffith in large part. The people surrounding Andy were the people who made him funny because he was kind of like, he was egging him on to do something ridiculous. He was always egging Barney on to do something silly or say something silly. It's like he'd like, he'd be amused by his nutty friend. And he, he's a guy surrounded by nutty friends and they were nutty in different ways. You know, oh, Floyd. Oh yes. Ed. Oh yes. Ed. Oh, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, you know, that kind of, it was just like, he was funny that way. Yeah. And Goober was, you know, not bright, but, yeah, not bright in his own way. Ernest T was crazy. Uh, Otis was the drunk guy who was nuts. But you get you get the laughs off these people. But Andy was getting the laughs and uh, by being just kind of there with them. Yeah, you know, I always thought of him. Of same thing with Seinfeld. They're they're, mm-hmm. they're the host of the party. They yeah. invited these characters together, and they're going to kind of pit one up against the other and, and mm-hmm. see if they can push their buttons a little bit. And so, yeah. while they're not the over the top character, they're the orchestrator of everything. Right, right. Well, the the Seinfeld structure was even it was was its own thing. I mean, that whole Larry David thing it was. Uh, it, I, my friend uh, Michael Kaplan pointed out, uh, and Michael's run some shows. Very, very excellent writer. Uh, Michael wrote uh, pointed out that Seinfeld wasn't about nothing. Everybody say, "Oh, it's about nothing." No, it's actually about about four people who treat the smallest things as everything. You know, and and what it, the way they structure that show was brilliant. Larry David's structure that he also uses in Kirby Enthusiasm is it would be four B stories, four small stories that wove together, dovetail at the end to be the one story. And you didn't know what that one story was going to be, but it was the story of this that you discover at the end. And so he kind of take these four strains and the four things that people wanted desperately. They had to have them. And each person was trying to get this thing that they had to have. And, and Jerry's Jerry Seinfeld's character, which was wonderful, uh, really, if, if you break it down, because it was him. It was the way that he did comedy. He he was a guy who couldn't stop observing. And it got in the way of all of his relationships with women because, right. it, you know, he li- loved, he'd like them. He'd think they were great. But there was this one thing that the woman yeah. with man hands, That's she's great, but she's got man hands. Right. And it's like things, you know, and he'd always ruin it because he couldn't stop observing. So, you know, it was like really interesting. The, the thing that these people are, they couldn't keep it back. You know, they couldn't hold back the thing that they are. The thing that made them funny and who they are was the thing that always got in their way. So it was yeah. like they were obst- obstacles to themselves in large part. Yeah. Right. And you can really see, I mean, Curb Your Enthusiasm, 
is a great way to look back at Seinfeld and just see that mm-hmm. it was really Larry David driving that truck, even though Seinfeld is a big part of it. That, right. that tradition continues uh, t- times 10 with his show because he has a little bit more uh, Absolutely. license on what to say and what to pick on. But yep. yeah, he's, that's interesting. Well, let me, we'll have to wrap up here in a second, which I hate, oh, but okay. I, I want to kind of uh, bring it back a little bit. So as a stand up, so you're kind of your own entity on stage, but we're mm-hmm. pulling from all these different comedic um, tropes and thoughts yeah. and styles. How, um, once you find what works for you, how important is it to, to shut all the rest out or to try to bring a little bit in to keep your show um, fresh and surprising? Because the thing in comedy is always a surprise. So if you're 100% you on stage, after about mm-hmm. 20 minutes, the crowd's like, well, this, this guy's always like this. So you, yeah. know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you lose yeah, that yeah. element of surprise. It's a very strong backbone to what you do and the right. structure. But, you know, what can we do with – as far as bringing in types that aren't us or should we just focus on who we are and just, you know, that's naturally going to bring stuff in. Yeah. I think it's an artificial construct, the way that we entertain people in large part, we say, okay, uh, the opener does 15, the middle does 30 uh, feature does 30 and the headliner does 45. And that's good. There are people out there who are hilarious. They're wonderful. You should only see them for 20 minutes. It's that's what they should be. They should always be booked for 20 minutes and they should still get headliner money because they're hilarious for those 20 minutes. But we do it this other way because we got to sell drinks in clubs and that they do it, you know, and, and then, you know, people book private parties and they go, well, we want you to do a full hour. Well, that's probably going to be a bad plan because that full hour, I mean, it's a good hour. People laugh for the hour. I can make you laugh for an hour. Um, but it's best to see me for 30 minutes because you're, you're going to just go, that was really, really fun. And, uh, you know, and I think that's, that's part of the thing is it's like, it's just a weird the way, because you do have, everybody has a, like Stephen Wright, who stuff was fantastic, but you'd watch it for about 20 minutes and then you go, okay, well, that's the rhythm of it. And I, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it tremendously, but I shouldn't have, I should 40 minutes, five minutes of that is just, it's too much. I think for me, you know, and I don't think it, I think that bore out, uh, in large part, but, um, so it's a weird thing. Some people are just, you know, they're a showman, they're entertainers, show women, they're entertainers, and they, they have a way to kind of weave it together and they know how to, how to make that, make that work. But yeah, I'm not really, I don't know. I think it really just comes out of who you are and I do big pieces. So I go from piece to piece to piece to piece and they're, they're different enough, you know, that, that it kind of, it, it kind of seems to work to go to 45 minutes, but I prefer to do about half an hour, 25 minutes. I mean, I think it's, I'm best for that, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I just think too, it's just more naturally who we are as people. It's it. Yeah. Like you rarely go to a party and go, yeah. I'm going to speak to that person for 15 minutes, that person yeah. to, for yeah. 30 yeah. and that person for 45. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you may, you may wish to do that or you may wish to go, I want to speak to you for three minutes. Everybody here is just a showcase. I'm not speaking anymore. More than three. Yeah. Minutes. Yeah. No, absolutely. But, but you yes. rarely, it, it, and it is that there are the rare occasions where you're like, I could listen to that guy talk or that lady talk uh-huh. for the entire day. But right. most humans are engaging, entertaining on a shorter basis, bringing yes. you their A game that goes for yeah. a party or on stage <laughs> or anywhere else. So I like that. I never really thought about how flawed the comedy club setup can be when we're really oh, trying yeah. to showcase somebody's talent. So interesting. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, man, I wish I had a couple more hours with you. I'll be great. To, yeah. Have to jump back on sometime soon and talk about sure, some sure. of the, uh, the stuff you're teaching as well because oh, okay. I'm sure each class you teach, we could do a podcast on that, but uh, 
Oh yeah, no, I, I I really love it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> that's cool, man. Well, I'm super glad you got a chance to jump in today. Um, yep. Is there one last piece of advice you would give anybody who's going to hit the stage either for their first time or for their hundredth time? And you know, here's, here's yeah. a way to think about it. Yeah, don't don't worry about outcomes. Don't worry about what happens. Don't worry about the the end of this. You know, don't worry about whether or not you they love you or they hate you or they're gonna you're gonna get a great big showcase out of it or you're gonna make. I mean, don't worry about that. Just do the thing that you're doing while you're doing it because you can't control outcomes. You can only control the process and the moment, and you can't even control the whole process. You know, if you're thinking about three minutes from now, you're not thinking about now, and so you have to be now. And it really is about being present. Um, you know, yeah. That's great. That's perfect. Good place to leave it. Thanks a lot, Rick. All right. Take care, buddy. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Jim Hope. Very interesting guy, full of energy and doing comedy for the right reasons, for the money. <laughs> no, I just like the way he was uh, 100% transparent, honest and helpful. And that's what I try to do with these interviews, get some information out of these folks and learn a little bit. I'm uh, learning how to do different things in comedy 30 years in. So hopefully you're picking up a few tidbits along the way and uh, sharing those with other people. So we all get bigger, better, more bookable, faster and funnier. That's the way to do it. All right. That's going to probably do it. If you want to support the podcast like Bo Schuster did, man, you're more than welcome to do that. You can go on to patreon.com and look up School of Laughs. And uh, anybody that's uh, contributing at the $7 a month or more level, you get to be part of Club 52, which is our really cool quarterly hangout. It's a, a, day, a weekly email that you get that helps you get bigger and better at comedy. And it gives you huge discounts, like 50% off of some of my classes, which a few people took me up on in this virtual class. So it can pay for itself. Uh, f- for a few months in certain ways and it definitely pays long term because it keeps the podcast going and that's great and I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this one. All kinds of fun stuff coming up. Oh yeah, hold on. <laughs> Breaks. I wanted to mention I was a guest on a podcast recently called uh, Breaking Down the Bits and this is a pretty fun podcast with uh, Brian Gendron and Drew Jordan, and they, uh, they're they both in Texas, I believe now, but they kind of go behind what makes a certain bit work, how you wrote it, and we break down two of my bits from one chunk of my show on Dry Bar, uh, my Uncle Chuck bit, and my, what I call cop over is my name for the bit, but it's when I'm driving across Kansas and pull some cops over and, and uh, find a way to weasel my Barney Fife impression in there, so... If you've ever seen those bits, you'd like to hear the story behind them, or you'd like to see them and know the story all together for the first time, check out Breaking Down Bits Podcast. And I'll have some other podcasts that I'm on to tell you about next time. Okay. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Stay covered up. Send the kids to school. Don't send them to school. Teach them to read. Don't teach them to read. Whatever you got to do, do it. Stay safe and stay funny. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs Podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Last podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.